0: Welcome to The Legal Impact, presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, Laura Kanoi. Today, an area of the law that concerns just about everyone these days, privacy and data. Our guest is Professor Maylin Fidler. She teaches criminal law, cybersecurity, and other subjects. Her scholarship focuses on the intersection of criminal law, technology, and speech. Professor Fidler is also an expert on the Fourth Amendment and changing technology, And that's what we'll talk about today, concepts she explores in a recent article for Lawfare titled, Data Isn't Property, It Doesn't Have to Be. Professor Fidler, welcome to The Legal Impact. It's really great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. So let's go back to basics for a moment. What does the Fourth Amendment say about privacy?
1: So the Fourth Amendment itself actually doesn't say anything about privacy, at least in those words. The Fourth Amendment talks about a specific right to be free, from unreasonable searches and seizures conducted by the government. Now, over time, that has become about privacy. The courts began talking about the Fourth Amendment using privacy language more in the mid-20th century. That's where we get the famous reasonable expectation of privacy test. But even after the shift, it's important to remember that the Fourth Amendment is really only about the government and privacy against the government, not other actors.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. So talk a little bit more about that, Professor Fiddler. It's privacy from the government, not about private actors, including, as we'll discuss later, my cell phone provider.
1: Absolutely. So the Fourth Amendment really only regulates what the government can and can't do with respect to certain things, your personal privacy, your personal property. But it doesn't have much to say about the digital giants that are in our, our lives right now, like Google and
0: Facebook. Yeah, it just gives you a sense of founding fathers did a good job, but <laughs> there was a lot they couldn't anticipate. So what does the Fourth Amendment then, Professor Fiddler, say about property? Does it define property? Does it give us a couple clues? Well,
1: actually, before we move on to that, I want to clarify one piece. It's actually very intentional that the Fourth Amendment is only against the government. It wasn't supposed to be a broad ranging privacy regulatory mechanism. The Bill of Rights is structured in such a way that it is addressing concerns about the government. There's definitely a lot of other places we can build in protections against uh, actors like Google and Facebook, but that's not what the Fourth Amendment is is doing.
0: Great. Important clarification. So what about property? Is there anything in the Fourth Amendment about that? So the Fourth Amendment
1: also doesn't use the word property, (laughs) Um, although we do get some more clues. So the Fourth Amendment is using words like the right to be secure in your houses and papers and effects. So that is sort of more property-like language. And that's where we get folks arguing that the Fourth Amendment is really about property.
0: Wow. So is it about, and I love this, you know, this fundamental lesson because it's so good to review. So is it fundamentally about the privacy of people or also of places and things? You just said house. So I'm thinking places and things are in there if you're talking about houses and, and papers.
1: So the question about whether the Fourth Amendment fundamentally protects the privacy of people or of places is really the big debate right now in Fourth Amendment law. So there's a famous line that the Supreme Court said. They came out and said the Fourth Amendment protects people, not places. That was in its famous decision, Katz versus United States. So that gives you one answer to that question. But the court has had trouble sticking to that. So over time, the court has often reverted to more place-based analysis sort of designating special places in our lives that receive almost default protection from the Fourth Amendment, particularly houses. Houses are really the high watermark of Fourth Amendment doctrine.
0: Oh, and cars too, right, Professor Fiddler? Cars to some extent, absolutely, but
1: cars get lesser protection than houses.
0: Interesting, because this often comes up, you know, we hear somebody was pulled over and the police say, I want to search your car, and that's where some of these issues come up. In that article that I referenced that you wrote for Lawfare, you say the court has been wrestling with competing notions of property and privacy as bases for 4th Amendment protections for decades. So, give us a little bit more, please, Professor Fiddler, on those competing notions.
1: Sure. So the competing notions, let's start with the the privacy approach. So the privacy-based notion is based off of something called the reasonable expectation of privacy. Under that approach, that means that the Fourth Amendment guarantees you freedom, again, from government searches and seizures, where you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Now, there's lots of areas in our lives where people agree, yeah, we have a reasonable expectation of privacy, right? Again, your house is going to be one of those, your car, again, to some extent, maybe a purse. But beyond those sort of obvious things that we agree on, there's a bit of a difficulty in deciding when do we have a reasonable expectation of privacy. The original case that from which this test was developed actually dealt with someone having a conversation in a public phone booth. And the court said, yeah, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in a phone booth. But that's something that's very easy to contest. I asked my students, and they're very easily able to come up with counter-arguments but why you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in a public phone booth.
0: I'm impressed that your students knew what a public phone booth was. I mean, it takes a little bit of explanation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So go ahead, Professor Friedler.
1: So that's the privacy notion, the the competing property notion. The argument here is it essentially goes back again to the the text of the Fourth Amendment and how the Fourth Amendment is listing those property-oriented things. So property under this view is how we should decide whether you have freedom from government search and seizure. So this approach would look at the phone booth and say, well, you definitely don't have property rights in a public phone booth, so the government wouldn't need a warrant to listen in on what you say there.
0: Really interesting. So how have the interpretations about privacy changed over time? I'm guessing there's been a lot of change since the beginning.
1: There's been a lot of shifts, yeah. And not all of them have shown up in Fourth Amendment law. So really the reasonable expectation of privacy that we see coming through in Fourth Amendment law centers around this notion of privacy as the right to be let alone, right? You get to keep other people out. You have your own little sphere of influence. But especially as other, you know, the digital giants have come into our lives and that kind of thing, there's been other notions of privacy that have been surfacing in legislation and regulation. So maybe privacy is about the right to control who has access to your information or privacy as self-determination. So those notions are coming up more and more
0: over time. Well, and let's, let's go there because it's so interesting. You know, you talk about privacy and the digital giants and how the Fourth Amendment only really directly addresses privacy from government intrusion. When I hand over information about myself to my cell phone provider or to Microsoft or to whatever social media platform I may be engaged in, you know, I'm willingly handing over my information to those entities, Professor Fidler. What sorts of privacy, if any, can I expect there?
1: So I'm going to focus this answer on what privacy you can expect in that information from the government. So once you hand over that information to Google, what kind of privacy do you have against the government asking Google for that information? So Let's go back to the reasonable expectation of privacy uh, conversation. It's very easy to argue, yeah, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy and a lot of that data. It's personal. It's private. But the court has actually gone in a different direction and developed something called the third-party doctrine. So this refers to the fact that once you hand over data to Google, etc., you're handing it over to a third party. And the, the court has said... You are voluntarily relinquishing any privacy that you had in that information. So you no longer have a reasonable expectation of privacy. That means the government doesn't have to get a warrant for that information. So that's the third-party doctrine. It's highly criticized. I do want to make one, one little caveat here, which is it depends on the category of data. So over time, different levels of protection have developed largely to protect content, things like our thoughts, our feelings in, in written form or otherwise, but there's less protection around uh, things like think about a letter. The contents of the letter are protected, but the address, the weight of the envelope, those kinds of things aren't protected under the third party doctrine.
0: Wow. So we're not on video, but my mouth is hanging open. I mean, so <laughs> I used to tell me if I'm wrong here, Professor Fiddler. I used to have a reasonable expectation that Google would not hand over my information to the government, but under this third-party doctrine, why yes, indeed, Google can hand everything over about me to the government?
1: Not quite. So this doctrine actually emerged a long time ago when the sort of data giants in our lives were the phone companies. So this is actually quite an old doctrine. So Google grew up in the age of the third-party doctrine and has been sort of only existing with with that set of expectations. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Google doesn't want to hand over all of your data to the government without a warrant, because what would that do to its its customer base, right? They wouldn't be super happy about that. So one of the interesting things we've seen in the digital age is these private actors starting to act like quasi-judicial actors. So Google will scrutinize requests that are coming in from the government and decide, eh, you know, are they going to grant that or not? And now probably more often than not, they do grant it. But uh, sorry, it's an interesting situation where we have a private actor with a lot of power, over whether to grant government requests for information.
0: Wow, that is really interesting. And I like the way that you said it, these private actors, companies like Google or whatever, kind of acting as quasi-judicial actors saying, yes, this is a legit request. No, this isn't a legit request. A role that we would expect a court or, or judges to play. So in that lawfare article that I referenced earlier you make the case professor Fidler, for what you call a property informed approach so really interesting what is a property informed approach
1: so property informed approach is what i'm trying to put forward as my answer to what do we do with these two competing concepts of the 4th amendment we have privacy on the one hand property on the other they both have pros and cons property informed approach i'm going to give a little bit of background about a pure property approach first. So a pure property approach to the Fourth Amendment or property maximalists, as I call them, say, okay, we have property. In the law, we think about property as a bundle of rights. So you have a right to sell property, you have a right to exclude others, etc. So there's this bundle of rights. Property maximalists in the Fourth Amendment context say, you only get Fourth Amendment protection when you have all of those sticks in that full bundle. Basically, what that means is you would only get Fourth Amendment protection about things that you own instead of renting. That's a little bit of an overstatement, but uh, for, for our purposes, that'll work. So what I think is that's not right. We don't need all the sticks in the bundle. What we do need is, is at least one of those sticks in the bundle, and I think that stick is the right to exclude. I think Fourth Amendment is really getting at when do you have a right to exclude someone, and when you have a right to exclude someone, that's when you should have protection from government searches and seizures. So let's talk about... The rent versus own thing. So let's say you're renting an apartment. Okay, you don't have full property rights over it, but you do have a right to exclude people from coming into your apartment willy-nilly, for example. You don't have the right to exclude everyone all the time. Your landlord is able to come in sometimes, but you generally have a right to exclude. And so that's where Fourth Amendment protections come from.
0: Oh, that's interesting. It's a little... A little less well-defined, but also more flexible. And you know, just sitting here as a a regular non-legal person, I can I can see what you're saying. You know, I have to let my landlord in, I have to let in the person that maybe the landlord hired to fix the heater, but I don't have to let in just any random person who knocks on the door.
1: Right. And this is an attempt to blend, as you said, some of the best. Definitional firmness of the property approach with a little bit more flexibility. And one of those aspects of flexibility is we can find right to rights to exclude in many sources of law. It's not just something that we decide that you have, so we can look at property rights, we can also look at statutes. That really opens the door to a wider array of sources for this property-informed right.
0: So what role have statutes, either federal or state, played in data privacy protection, Professor Fiddler? And Do you see any statutes out there that are maybe adopting this property informed approach?
1: So, statutes have played a huge role in data privacy protection against private actors. So, as we talked about, the Fourth Amendment is really about the government. Statutes have come in and provided some protections against private actors. Now, I will say in America, we take what we call a sectoral approach to data privacy. We pass statutes that protect privacy for health data, for example, but not all data, whereas other areas of the globe have taken more comprehensive approaches. But these statutes often convey what I consider to be rights to exclude. So these statutes that have developed in the private sort of realm are actually very helpful in locating these rights to exclude under this this proposal for the Fourth Amendment.
0: So a sectoral approach in this country might be, you know, the HIPAA law that we all know, the health information protection. What are the benefits and disadvantages of this sort of slice-by-slice approach, Professor Fidler?
1: Yeah, so one of the big advantages is it tailors the privacy rights that you have to very specific forms of data. So health law, sorry, health data, right, that's very sensitive and you probably want a lot of protections for that kind of data. And so going sector by sector Allows you this tailoring, allows you to get higher protections where they're needed and maybe not as high protections where they're not needed. The big drawback is that there's going to be data that falls through the cracks. So if the data isn't covered by one of these sectoral regulations, eh, what kind of privacy do you have? You're not left with that much.
0: Oh, that's interesting. It's my impression, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that Europe takes a wider, tougher approach toward privacy protection than in the U.S. What have you observed there, Professor Fiddler?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And in fact, they don't even call it privacy, they call it data protection. So sort of almost more militaristic term, right? They got to protect the data. It's not just privacy. And what this means is that data in particular has a whole host of specific protections that come with it. So it's not just a a nebulous concept of privacy. They define that you have the right to access your data that's held by, say, private actors like Google. You have the right of rectification. So if they have wrong information about you, under a data protection regime, you might have the right to fix that data, that kind of thing. So it's it's very different. And in particular, data protection is not directed at the government. It's directed primarily at private actors. I mean, the government is is swept in as well to some degree, but it's primarily directed at private actors.
0: Does it work, Professor Fiddler? Because I'm skeptical. I mean, they just the digital world just seems like the Wild West. There's just so many holes and so many you know, bad actors. And, you know, once a month you get a letter from some service provider saying, oops, sorry, we were hacked. I mean, do these tougher laws actually work? I think I might
1: contest calling them tougher. I think I would call them more comprehensive. So it requires private actors, right, to give you this range of rights. Does it work? Well, it works to the extent that you have access to these particular sets of rights. There's still an ongoing debate about whether that is sort of an appropriate definition of privacy, whether that's comprehensive enough, or whether it sort of defaults into this privacy by checklist. You know, if you fit this checklist, you have privacy. Is that really a substantive right to privacy? That kind of thing.
0: Are there any upcoming Supreme Court cases that you'll be watching that pertain to this issue of privacy and data?
1: So this is not a Supreme Court case, at least not yet, but there's a case that's really interesting in the Fourth Circuit called U.S. versus Chhatri, or Chatri, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's about a police tactic called geofence warrants. So again, this is a Fourth Amendment case about privacy against the government. So geofence warrants, what this lets the police do is let's say they know that a robbery was committed at a certain location. What they can do is they can ask data providers like Google for a list of all of the cell phone numbers that were in the general area of that robbery. Now, we have a general uh, preference in this country for individualized suspicion before you're getting information in a criminal context about people. They don't have individualized suspicion about all of the people that were in the area of the robbery. And so there's an ongoing debate about how the Fourth Amendment should apply to this particular tactic. Now, my view, right, the property-informed view would say that the Fourth Amendment doesn't allow this kind of thing, at least without proper legal process. Okay, obviously, you don't have a right to exclude others from knowing your location when you're in public. Other people can see you. But there would be particular statutes that we could look at that say you do have a right to exclude certain people from accessing that information from your phone records. So what's really interesting about this Fourth Circuit case is that in response to this litigation, Google and some other major tech players have changed the technological process of how they collect this kind of information so that the government can actually get the kind of information they're looking for, even if they have the appropriate legal process. And so again, we see private actors playing a role in this process through technology as sort of quasi-judicial actors.
0: That's really interesting. So if I happen to be in the vicinity of that crime, the government would ask Google, you know, could you Give us Laura Canoy's cell phone number. I mean, well, they wouldn't know it was me, but they would, they would give, they would ask Google to give all the cell phone numbers of people who were in that area, including mine. And all of a sudden I would be sort of part of this case, whether I wanted to be or not.
1: Yeah, part of the case at least for a while until they, you know, cross you off the list as a, as a suspect.
0: Almost like I'm a digital witness. I didn't see yeah, it, but mm-hmm. I was sort of digitally in the area. Oh, it's really That's a great interesting. term for it. Mm-hmm. All right, we will keep an eye on that one for sure. What about your own digital footprint in the world, Professor Fiddler? given your expertise in this area?
1: So the one thing I would say to everybody is use and support encrypted products. So there's a huge misconception that encryption is only good for or used by criminals or folks who have something to hide. That's absolutely not true. Everybody should be using it. So use it, donate to efforts, download Signal. That's an app today.
0: And Signal is an app that allows uh, Uh, encrypted messaging, text messaging. Wow. All right. And phone calls, encrypted phone calls as well. Thank you very much. That's all the time we have, Professor Fidler. I really appreciate you being with us today. Thanks so much. That's Professor Maylin Fidler. She teaches criminal law, criminal procedure, cybersecurity, and copyright at UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. Well, that's it for this month's episode of The Legal Impact. I'm Laura Connoy, Director of Community Engagement at the Law School's Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service. Our show is recorded, edited, and produced by the Marlon Fitzwater Center for Communication at Franklin Pierce University. Opinions discussed on The Legal Impact do not constitute legal advice, or represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact.